All right, good evening. Welcome to Hope Community Church Lowertown. This is exciting. Uh, this is fun for me. Hopefully it's fun for you. Hopefully it will be fun for you. I don't know what I'm trying to say right now, but I'm glad you're here and uh, enjoying this space. Uh, if you, if this is your first time here, I mean, I, I come here every week and I still just have my breath taken away by this building. And, and um, so, um, by the way, my name is Brian, one of the pastors at Hope Community Church and, uh, and primarily here uh, to Lowertown at this location, this campus. And and I'm glad that we uh, have the ability to host all of you here tonight instead of trying to do it tomorrow, which uh, if you're downtown, thank you. And if you're a lower town person, I guess we, nobody really cares about the Super Bowl if you lives in Minnesota. But either way, uh, you can watch it with your friends. And we want to encourage you to have community. If you don't have any place to go, you can talk to me afterwards and we'll figure something out. So uh, anyways, welcome here. So this is uh, the Sanctuary's First Baptist Church. I'm going to share a little bit of information that I shared at the annual meeting. So if you were there at that, I apologize. You're going to hear the same story twice, but um, this building, at least the, the church, the congregation of First Baptist Church, was started actually by Harriet Bishop in 1841. So Harriet Island, if you're familiar with that, um, that's named after Harriet Bishop. Just started a little Sunday school in uh, what was Pig's Eye at the time, and then uh, it uh, changed to St. Paul later on. So it was before it was even a state that she started this little Sunday school and and it just grew and started to take off and grew and grew. And so another gentleman came in and, and took over the church as far as a church, not just a little Sunday school. And um, fun fact, so Aaron Shaw, if you know Aaron, he's a, our third-year intern here at Hope. And he was teaching at an off-road retreat a couple weeks ago or a month ago now. And he was doing his, uh, his, his talk on church history, and he kind of came across some really fascinating information uh, when it came to this, at least this building, and how that uh, has to do with us and Hope Community Church. So again, 1841, uh, First Baptist Church, they are established, and then in this building, this actual building you're sitting in, was built in 1874. And so, uh, you know, a couple you know, decades later, they, they built the sanctuary. It was actually, their original building was Kitty Corner, uh, where the Catholic Church is now, but it ended up burning down. Um, perfect timing because this one was already being constructed. So I was like, yeah, we don't need that one anyways. We're good. So they moved in here. What's interesting, though, is in 1853, uh, First Baptist Church of St. Paul ended up planting First Baptist Church of Minneapolis. So if you're familiar with that, over kind of on the, the west side of downtown St. Paul, First Baptist Church was planted in 1853 by uh, this church and by the people that lived that were attending here. And then that church then later on in uh, 71, 1871 went and planted the Swedish Baptist Church, which would eventually change its name to Bethlehem Baptist Church, which as you know uh, is probably just literally just one block away from uh, Hope Community Church downtown. In 1996, we're going to fast forward here 150 years, uh, but in 1996, uh, Pastor Steve Treichler, who was at Bethlehem Baptist, uh, got the church planting bug with he and a couple of his uh, buddies and, and families, and they said, let's plan a church and, and let's focus on reaching the U of M. And so they did that. And then in 2017, little did we know that we would be back here at First Baptist Church and this cycle. So I'm praying that that cycle and circle doesn't end with us here, uh, that we want to continue to plant churches and we want to continue to start uh, new locations. And so there's a lot of history wrapped up into this. And, and I shared at the annual meeting that you know, 168 years ago, when that church was founded, when this church was founded, Harriet Bishop didn't think about 168 years later, there's going to be a new church that's going to be meeting in this location. Um, that's not on their mind, and it's not really on our minds, but I, I want it to be, right? Maybe we need to be more forward-thinking and, and push this idea of churches in the cities uh, and, what, and just that 
just a little blip on the radar uh, that Hope Community Church is that we can actually make an impact for the kingdom uh, in our time. So anyways, that's this. There's a lot, a lot of information that could be said about it. A lot of it is in the windows. So if you look at that, you could probably learn more about it. And uh, we would love to talk to you about that. So anyways, we're going to be uh, talking about Moses and looking at the gospel according to Moses and looking at the book of Exodus. This is our third uh, sermon in this series in Exodus, and so uh, really excited about where we've been and where we're going. And so uh, we're talking about Moses, right? Talking about Charlton Heston, right? And so we're going to be talking about this guy for for a while. Um, but what we're going to see tonight was we're going to see that um, Moses kind of does something a little foolish. And, and I'm sure maybe you've been there, right? But have you ever tried to fix a situation, but then you actually end up making it worse? Right, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like ruin, ruining an iconic image by adding a carrot to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I kid, kind of. But um, for, for me, for me this, is, this is my Jeep. This is the inside of my Jeep, and that's my little boy, Henry. And um, he, he loves the Jeep, I think probably because it's just not safe. So he's kind of up really high, and he can just look out the window and just get to see the world. And actually, I thought it was kind of, he picked this picture because he had his hands up just like Moses. I thought it was kind of <laughs> interesting, but <laughs> I don't know if God's trying to tell me something here, but no, uh, he's beautiful just like Moses, I guess. Anyways, this Jeep, I, I love this Jeep, all right? And, and, and I know it doesn't make any sense. I've, I've probably put way too much money into it than what it's worth and all that stuff, but I really enjoy working on this Jeep. And Steve, Pastor Steve, always has this joke, like, oh, yeah, I always, I know these guys that have Jeeps, and they're always talking about, oh, yeah, I was working on my Jeep the other day. And he's like, yeah, that's the whole point. You're always working on your Jeep, all right? Now, the things that I've done to it have been more for fun than practicality and don't really make any sense. It all started back, I don't know, when I first bought it six years ago or so, uh, I ended up hitting a deer and had to fix a couple things. I was on the highway, 694, and just just hit a deer. Okay, we're gonna, we'll get graphic. Okay, I hit a deer, and it did. I, I did more damage to the deer than the deer did to the jeep. Okay, we'll just say that. And I ended up uh, looking at how to replace the headlights. And then as I did that, I realized, oh man, you can do so much work to this jeep for so cheap. I could actually lift the whole thing two inches for eighty dollars. Sold. I was like, I can do that. Right? And looking at these YouTube videos, it was like, oh, you just need a wrench and a hammer, and it's super easy. It's like, all right, here we go. No, 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 no. At least for me, I'm not a mechanic. I don't have the right tools. And so I ended up doing harm, get it towed to the place. They fixed my problem, installed the parts I bought for $80, right? It ended up costing me more money. Uh, the other day, I tried to change the spark plugs by myself, blew a fuse, didn't realize it, get it towed, right? So I ended up trying to fix something that does more harm than good. I, I, I modified it to take the doors off of it. Um, why? Why not, right, is the question you should be asking, all right? And, and so it's a lot of fun to drive around, especially in the summer. I don't do that in the winter. And I don't put Henry in it with the doors off, I promise. Um, and so it, it, doing that was great, but I ended up just screwing up all the wiring, obviously. So, so the windows sometimes work. Um, so I tried to fix this and end up doing more harm than good, but maybe on a, on a serious note, maybe not kind of, it's not serious at all, but we, we tend to kind of throw out pithy sayings, pithy, I don't think it's a word, maybe it is, but we try to send out these, we, we give out these, these phrases, someone's going through a difficult time or, or experiencing calamity and we say, yeah, you know, it's okay, God's going to work everything out for good. Whoa, right? That's not what we want to say in a moment. I'm trying to fix it, but you end up doing more harm than good. And, and so we buy coffee mugs, and it says, this one says, God loves you most. I, I, I saw it today, and I was like, that's interesting. God loves you most. Who's this, who owns this mug, right? I want to know. 
who does God love most? And then the verse there is then Romans 8.38. So I, I quickly looked that up like, wow, is there a verse that says who God loves most? And this is the verse. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. <laughs> Context matters. Okay, now the next verse will go on to explain that, yes, God, God loves you, and you cannot be separated from God's love, but God loves you most, right? That can do some harm to somebody, especially when they don't feel that God loves them in those moments. And we're going to see that uh, here with Moses, that Moses is going to end up trying to do something for good, that he thinks is a good thing, and ends up doing a lot of harm uh, to himself and to his people. So let's get into this passage today. Um, we're going to be reading a lot of text today, not a whole lot of commentaries, because the scripture really kind of answers this passage and some of the things that we're, we're looking at today. And so I'm going to let the text just do its thing. And so I'm not going to apologize for reading a lot of scripture today, but uh, I, I am looking forward to where, where this is going. So um, last week, Pastor Cor, if you, didn't, if you didn't hear his sermon last week, I, I really encourage you to go back online and listen to it. Um, I've been studying Exodus for a while, uh, you know, took classes in seminary and school on these things, and, and Cor unpacked some things. Cor, if you don't know Pastor Cor, I know you know him uh, as a pastor and as a preacher, um, but he is just one of the most kind uh, men that I've ever met, that he has a pastor's heart, and I do too, but it just, it just kindness just oozes off of him. Uh, and he just has a way and a manner and how to teach. And he, and, he, and he talked about this. You need to look at the difference between the narration, the words that we're actually reading, and then the narrative. Like, what, what is in between? What is actually happening? And he, and he explained some things that happens. And I'm going to go back and read uh, the passage that he preached on last week. But I, wanna, I just want to look, uh, just remind you of that. There's a lot going on here that I think it's so easy just to skip over. And I think today that we need to even put ourselves in Moses' shoes. What was going through his mind? What was he thinking about when these things happened? And so today's sermon, God making his leader. And so we're going to go back to where Korah was last week and just read through this. I'm not going to do a lot of commentary because Korah did that last week. Um, but looking at Moses as a child. And so King Pharaoh, King Pharaoh, Pharaoh, uh, <laughs> Pharaoh made a decree that said every Hebrew boy that's born uh, needs to be thrown into the River Nile. We need to kill them. We're worried about this population uh, this group of people that is not like us, that's different from us, we need to kill them so that we don't have to worry about them anymore. And so we pick up then in chapter 2 where Kor was, and it says this starting in Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became preg pregnant and gave birth to a son. And, and again, I stopped, I said I was going to stop. But Kor, he did this thing, right, where he says, like, like think about this, right? This decree had just been made. These, this couple, this new couple knows, well, we're, we're, we're pregnant. Right? What, what's going to happen to our baby? And, and he, just the words that he said, like, please be a girl. Right? Let this be a girl so we don't have to even worry about this. And they give birth to a son. Right? There's a lot that happens in there. That's the narration, but the, 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 narr the narrative is, is so much more. All right, continuing here. I'm not going to stop doing that. We're going to be here all night. When she saw... That he was a fine child. She hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds and among the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. When Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, 
and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, uh, then his sister the, that was watching this whole thing unfold, asked Pharaoh's daughter, uh, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Right? You can't make that up. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. I will pay you to take care of your own child. <laughs> So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. All right, that was what was preached last week. I skipped over a lot. Obviously, that could be said about that, um, but we have a lot to cover tonight in Exodus 2, 11 through 25. So uh, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm just going to read uh, the whole passage and then we are going to uh, go back and look at it a little by little and unpack this a little bit more. And ultimately, what does this mean for us today? So that is the passage. Let's look at this. Exodus 2, 11 through 25. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and, and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs with, uh, with water for their father's flock. And some of the shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And when the girls returned to uh, Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. And even drew water for us and watered the flock. Well, where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son. And Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That is the passage that we're going to be talking about today. So I want to look at, first of all, more insight into Moses' childhood. That passage doesn't really give us a whole lot. It says that he was named Moses by Pharaoh because I have drawn him out of the water. And then it just says, and then he grew up. Like one day when Moses was older. That's really all it says. And so Dr. Luke, right? So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke. And then he also writes the follow-up, you know, book two here uh, in Acts. And he gives us a little bit more insight in what happens with Moses. And he says, at the time that Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child, for three months he was cared for by his family. 
And he was placed outside, and Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So again, we got to put ourselves in this situation. Now, Pastor Cord mentioned we don't really know exactly how old Moses would have been when he was in Pharaoh's uh, house, when he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. But what we do know is that he would have been raised as an Egyptian. He would have learned their customs. He would have learned their religions and worshipped their gods, right? Which is going to be really important later on. I'm not going to give that spoiler alert quite yet, but this is really important. That Moses knows the Egyptian ways. He knows their customs. And he's powerful in speech and action. That's what we know about Moses. And again, last week, Pastor Cora, from this uh, quote from St. Augustine, uh, to whom we don't know where this came from, and we don't know for sure if it was St. Augustine, but we're going to give it to him anyways, um, was this, the New Testament is hidden in the Old. So we're going we're gonna to look at the New Testament, and I already did, right? Looking at, at Luke, or Acts, the book of Acts, and then even Hebrews, that they're going to give insight into the Old Testament, that the New Testament is hidden in the Old. That, man, when you read this, do you realize that this is saying so much more? And then the Old Testament is then unveiled in the New. And Jesus even says this. This happens in, in, in uh, Matthew and in Mark uh, where, where he's talking to the Pharisees. And, and they're saying, you know, they're, they're, they're arguing with him. And he says, I'm not going to need to accuse you on the day of judgment. Moses is going to do that, right? The guy that you love and adore, he's going to stand there and accuse you because he has revealed who I am. Everything that Moses said points and talks about me. So that's this idea. And so we're going to look at this and we're going to kind of go back and forth between old and new and get a little bit more insight from our own scriptures into what scriptures are teaching us. So how much time went by? This coming of age of Moses, how much time went by? Again, in the, in, in the Exodus passage, all we have is one day after Moses had grown up. That's all we get. Well, again, in Acts, Luke tells us that Moses was 40 years old. All right, like, boom, that's it. Like, we don't know how old. And then all of a sudden, he was 40 years old when this story takes place. And it's interesting because I used to think 40 was old, you know, and, and uh, it's really not. You know, I think like, that's, this is like, I think you're just finally becoming a man, you know, when you hit your mid-30s. Uh, you're in the prime of your life, really. Uh, just kidding. Um, I remember Pastor Tim, I just popped in my head, he was talking about kids playing football or something. And, uh, and it wasn't, you know, it's amazing. Like, yeah, they get hit and they fall down. But it's, like, that's one thing. But he's like, it's amazing how quick they get back up, right? That's, that's how you know they're in the prime of their life is how fast they bounce back up, um, which I wouldn't. But I, I remember my mom's 40th birthday party. You know, it's like, that used to seem so old to me, but it's not, right? It's really not. And that's right. <laughs> so Moses is, is 40, when this happens, when these events start to take place. And it says, And he went out where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And this is a conversation that Steve and Cor and I had about when did Moses realize that he wasn't an Egyptian? Right? Because you couldn't really do it just by looking at them, as we're going to see later on. Right? The Zipporah, the daughter, sees him and says, An Egyptian helped us. Um, so there was something about him that was he told as an infant, was he told as a child, was he in, the, in, in Pharaoh's daughter's care, and she told him, right, was it like the movie The Prince of Egypt, where he, he just goes out for a stroll at night and ends up running into his brother and sister, you know, that are slaves, and like, oh, you've come to finally save us, and he's like, what are you talking about, right, does that happen, I don't know, 
Right? And I don't think Scripture gives us any insight on that. And, and commentaries were kind of all over the place on this, but I want to stick to what Scripture says. And it doesn't really give us the insight on that of how old he was uh, when he discovers this. But he does know that he's not Egyptian. And he sees his people. He sees his Hebrews. He sees the people that he should have been part of. And at the same time, he also knows that he should have been dead. If he was like his contemporaries, he shouldn't even be alive. So he looks at his people, looks at his own people, and he watched them hard at their labor. And then he says, he says, he saw an Egyptian. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that. He looks around. Is anybody watching? Is anybody looking at what's going to happen? He kills the Egyptian and then hides his body in the sand. All right, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit once we get into the New Testament here a little bit. And I shared this a couple weeks ago, but this is uh, one of my favorite interpreting tools uh, that I've ever used. And this is from Scott Duvall's book called um, Grasping God's Word. And in this, he has this image that, again, it's very cartoony, but there's uh, some really, really helpful ways. If you're studying Scripture and you're looking at, you're reading your Old Testament, and you come across passages, like even today's passage, you're reading that and going, what is, how, how does that connect to me? How do I draw this to, to me? And, and is it even about me? Right? Because you can't allegorize everything. Right? When we look at Old Testament passages and this story of Moses, this is a real story. But when we say that images, that Jesus then, that Moses was a type of Christ, and that it's pointing to who Jesus was and is, it's not saying that Moses was just some story. No, that really happened. But we're going to see Jesus fulfills everything that Moses was supposed to do in a perfect way. So number one there, the point there, and I don't have any handouts or anything here, so if you're taking notes, I'll try to be precise here. But the first point is grasp the text in their town. All right, anytime you're studying the Old Testament, what was it like to be them? Right? Look at that idea of, okay, narrative, uh, the narrative, the narration versus the narrative. What it, put yourself in their shoes. How did you dress? How did you talk? What language were you speaking? Were you in slavery? What covenant are you underneath? Right? How would I actually understand? Put yourself in their shoes. The next thing is the point two there is the river. You've got to gauge the width of the river. But you've got culture, language, time, and then situation. And so as you're looking at even this part, even the story that we're looking at, or a random law in the book of Leviticus, you look at this and you say, okay, what is the situation that we're in? Well, currently right now, what we see in Exodus is that God's people, the Hebrews, are enslaved. All right, I look at the width of the river and I say, what's my situation, right? What is the, the principalizing bridge is the third point there that I cross over and I look back at that and I say, okay, that is a true story about Israel, but what is this about me here? Well, the truth is, and, and, and I love that Josh uh, read that verse from, uh, from Galatians, right? That we have been set free to be free, so don't continue any longer under the yoke of slavery. That I was a slave to sin, but yet I have been set free, and that's going to happen to the Egyptians, right? So we cross this principalizing bridge. The fourth point on there is uh, consult the biblical roadmap. And that has been one of the most helpful tools that you could ever use in studying Scripture. And you don't have to be a Bible expert, a Bible scholar. I'm not. All you do is you Google it, and you, see, and you click on it, and you click on that, and it leads you down this path. And you see all these little connections that go between passages of Scriptures. 
And so we look at this and we say, okay, we, we see this story in Exodus. Is there any other parallel stories? Do we get any more insight? And we do. We do in Acts and in Hebrews as well. And then finally, the last point there, number five, is then now grasp that text in my city. All right, so if the, the law back then was don't cut the corners of your field, right, that's not, that's not my city, right? I'm not a farmer. I don't need to cut the corners of my, like leave that for the poor to feed the hungry. There are other ways in which I have been commanded to teach the, the, and feed the poor and take care of the hungry, right? That's what we've been instructed to do. It's a principle. So let's consult that biblical roadmap. And I want to look at Acts 20, 29. It says, When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, and he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. And so he went down to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought, all right, that's a very key insight that Luke gives us. Moses thought. There's this thing happening to my people. I should be killed by the hands of the Egyptians, but I'm not. God spared me. Well, maybe this is like Joseph, right? Maybe when God spared Joseph's life and was sold into slavery into Egypt and rose into a prominent position of power and authority in Egypt to save his people, oh, man, that was 400 years ago. Maybe it's about that time, that promise that God made with Abraham. Maybe now this is about me. Maybe now I can set his people free, again, by being in a position of power and authority. So Moses thinks that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. How would you view somebody who was just like you, but then was a traitor, right? Who was living in a palace, whose, whose grandpa, right, was the pharaoh who was responsible for the death of maybe some of your siblings growing up, who was responsible for your enslavement. Moses thought God was going to use him this way, and he didn't, and so he ends up trying to set God's people free in his own way. That he sees these Hebrews in slavery, and he says, I, I think I can do this. I can fix this. And what does he do? He uses the sword, which is completely contrary to how Jesus is going to do it. We're going to see Moses try to fix a situation in his own human way and ends up making the matters worse. And we do this, right? Mini application time here in the middle of the sermon. We, we, we do this all the time, right? That I've got this situation. I, I've got a conflict with my coworker. You know what? I think, the, I think the wise thing to do here would just be just ignore it. You know what? You know, maybe not. You know, maybe I should just go talk to my other coworkers about it. I'll talk to them about this issue I've got with that person. And we end up doing things in our own way. Man, my marriage, it's just not what it used to be. I didn't, she's just not who I married 10 years ago. I, I, I just, I don't think we should be married anymore. I think it'd be healthier for the kids for just to, let's just call this. And we do things in our own power. I say, man, I've been dating this girl for a long time. She wants to get married. I'm not ready for commitment. But, but man, the sex is so good. And, and we do things in our own power. And then we look at the life of Christ. And he does it perfectly. And we're going to look, again, just that parallel story. I'm not going to turn there, but in Luke, when we get to the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does he do? What does he pray? He says, not my will be done, but yours be done. But yet, every day, we sit here and we say, no, I think, I think my will is better. The thing that Jesus does, the, the life that he lives, and how he portrays how we should conduct ourselves as believers in this world and in our community and with our families seems really hard. 
seems like there's going to be conflict. Let's not do that. Let's do that on our own. And Jesus reveals this plan for his people that even though we are enslaved, he's not going to do it with the sword. Quite contrary. Peter, in that moment, right, cuts off the Roman soldier's ear and Jesus says, no, 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 no. No. That's not how we do this. We don't do this by force. We see next that Moses flees Egypt. Sorry, I was preaching there. I wasn't planning on doing that. <laughs> Moses flees Egypt. We see this next, and I'll, and I'll go through these. The next day, he went down and saw two Hebrews fighting and asked the one and the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrews? So again, going back to Acts, the next day, Moses, so I go, unless it's very redundant, but um, redundant, but the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers why do you want to hurt each other? Going back to Exodus, and the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Right, you got to remember here, Moses is in a position of, of at least a little bit of authority. Why? Well, first off, he's an Egyptian, technically, by his, how he was raised. He's viewed as an Egyptian. He's the, he's the, he's the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Right? So his step-grandpa is the guy. Who made you judge over us? You're just like me. You're a Hebrew just like me. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. And again an Acts, but the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian. So Moses settles in the wilderness. Where is this exactly? Um, you might not be geographically minded, uh, but just so you kind of understand where, where we're at, um, you've got, obviously, I get, a, I get a laser pointer here in Lower Town. I get all the fun things, yeah. Uh, so you've got Egypt right down here, so they're, they're going to be right in here. And so Midian is going to be right here in between the kind of V of the Red Sea here, right? So here you've got Jerusalem right here. Uh, and you've got Rome right here. All this stuff that happens in the Bible takes place right there, okay? Um, the next slide, though, is, is uh, Moses moves to Midian. So you can kind of see, I don't know how, was there a road there? I don't know why they drew a line. Like, how do they know he went there? I don't know. But he goes to Midian here, and Mount Sinai, which is going to be really important, is very close. It's right there. Uh, so a lot happens in this area over the next 40 years. So that's where he's at. He moves to Midian. All right, and then, and then verse 16 says this. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. This is something, um, at least for me, I, I grew up watching the cartoon The Prince of Egypt, right? Was singing along with Whitney Houston, just rocking out to, to The Prince of Egypt. I, I loved it, and I thought it was a great cartoon, um, and the music was cool. But that kind of put this narrative into my head of, of what happened to Moses. And uh, because, honestly, one of my at the time, one of my pastors in Chicago, he actually was brought out, I think it was DreamWorks, and, and as a pastor that I trusted, and he was actually giving them counsel on the storyline and how they should follow it. So it's like, oh, yeah, of course, this is, like, super accurate, right? Um, right? They take a little bit of artistic liberty, and that's okay, right? You're allowed to do that. But we have this idea of this priest of Midian, and in my mind, my mind goes back to, to this guy, right? Goes back to Jethro. Um, in the passage we have, his name is uh, Reuel, uh, but for the rest of uh, the book of Exodus, he's going to be called Jethro. I don't know why there's a change. They'll say Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. But in this cartoon and in this story, you see priests of Midian, and if you're like me, you just think, oh, he's, just, he's a priest like, 
like an like a Israelite priest, right? He's he worships God the Father and Yahweh, just like everybody else. No, 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 no. No, he doesn't. Right? This guy, Jethro, he's a pagan priest of uh, Druze, Dru, Druze, D-R-U-Z-E, okay? And this is, this is actually a, a pagan religion that is still practiced today. I was looking on Wikipedia, so I don't know how accurate it is, but approximately 2 million people still practice this today, and they actually view Jethro, uh, that he was their spiritual founder of their religion, and he was their chief prophet, all right? That's Moses' father-in-law that he happens to stumble across here in Midian. He's a pagan priest. Don't forget that. He's going to come up a lot, actually, in the story of Moses. So that's a little bit of his background. Verse 16, Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. So they're shepherdesses. Is that a word? I don't know. They're shepherds, um, shepherders. And um, they uh, are out there taking care of the father's flock, and some other shepherds come along, and they drive them away. Like, hey, you can't be by this well. We need to water our flock. Get out of here. But Moses gets up and comes to the rescue, and he waters the flock. And when the girls return to Jethro, their father, he asks them, just his, and I think the cartoon does a good job of making his character very jolly and happy, because he just, it just kind of comes across that way, like, oh, hey, welcome home, girls. Why are you home so early, you know? And they answered in Egyptian. Okay, so here we have these, these individuals who, who just by seeing Moses, or maybe his dialect and how he talked or his mannerisms, say he was an Egyptian. Maybe the way he was dressed, we don't know. But an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. That's nice. Must have had a little bit of a crush on maybe one of these seven daughters, potentially. And he waters their flock, because why else would you do all that work for nothing? It's silly. <laughs> Verse 20. I love this, right? Jethro says, where, where is he? Like, you just, you just left him out in the desert. Like, what, where is he? Jethro asks his daughters, and why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat, right? Just this jolly man. Just come on. What are you kidding me? This guy was nice to you and just left him out there. And Moses agrees to stay with the man. Again, this all happens. Seems like it happens very fast. Um, we don't know the timeline here exactly. But Jethro ends up giving uh, Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gives birth to a son. And Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner. And that word is going to come up a lot in the book of Exodus. Because foreigner can be translated as alien and exile. So Moses here, he says, I have become an exile in a foreign land. And as we look at the Israelites and as their camp is being established, there's a lot of themes about what it means to be outside of the camp, to be in exile. And Moses is saying, that's me. For 40 years, I grew up in Egypt watching my own people and I'm not in my own land. I'm in exile where even I grew up. I'm in exile here, and I will be in exile wandering for 40 years. But he doesn't know that. Yet, similarly, when we look at Jesus, and we look at what it meant to be outside the camp and what he taught on these things, and that he had nowhere to lay his head at night, that the foxes had a place, a den, a place to call home, but I don't have one. Right? That I've come to my own people, but they haven't even received me. I'm supposed to set them free. We see these parallels that we see with Jesus. So we see here that Moses settles in the wilderness for 40 years. 
during that long period, okay, that's again, that's how we know it was, well, we don't know it was for 40 years, um, well, we know that later on, uh, but not, not here. But during that long period, that long period is another 40 years, okay, so in your mind you think Moses and Charlton Heston, right, going back, set my people free, he's 80 years old, right, now that is old, all right, no offense if you're 80. <laughs> Yeah, Brian, you can email, email Steve at hopecc.com. Uh, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. All right, and again, that's the whole thing. That this, this narrative is taking place, but the whole time, what's happening? These people are still enslaved, and they're groaning out. They're, they're crying out, God, save us, remember us. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, when you first read it, it sounds like, well, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Your people are going to multiply. But listen, before all this is said and done, you're going to be in slavery for 400 years. God didn't just, all right, well, they're cool for 400 years. I'll be back, right? Set the watch, set your clocks. A couple generations are going to come and go, and you're still going to be in slavery. But then one of these days, I'll start paying attention. No, that's not the case. And we're going to see, again, this theme of remembrance and being remembered all throughout the book of Exodus, that God isn't human like we are, like, oh, yeah, I did make that promise. Oh, yeah, I did set that date on my calendar. Where was Google for the last 400 years to remind me that I'm supposed to care for these people? That's not what's happening here. He remembers his covenant that he makes with Abraham, that you are going to be my people, and I will set you free, and you will dwell in a land. Makes his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked at the Israelites and was concerned about them, that he knew them, that he hears, he hears their cry. Again, Cor used this quote last week, and it says, although Exodus stands as unique and unrepeatable, right? This is an event in the history of Israel. Okay, this is a real thing. They were actual people in slavery. It also stands as a paradigmatic and highly repeatable way God wishes to act in the world and ultimately will act for all of creation. That here they are, they're in slavery, and they say, God, remember us. You made a promise to me. And here today, the same paradigm that we get here, crossing that principalizing bridge of saying, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Remember me. And he does. Because he knows what it's like. I want to look at Hebrews. Again, another passage that points to Moses. In Hebrews, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but he says this, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And there's a lot that could be said about this, but you've got to remember, he, he's seen as an Egyptian. And he sees his people suffering, and he could have said, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to stay in my palace. I'm going to do my thing. I'm not going to worry about that. But he says, no, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures here for a little while. Again, sounds like Christ. Christ could have stayed on his throne. There's no need for any of us to be redeemed. There's not any need for any human being ever to be saved by God the Father. Not at all. But the Trinity, before the foundation of the world was ever laid, 
Jesus says, I'm going to go, I'm going to take on flesh, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die for these people. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And then chapter 12 of Hebrews then points us directly to Jesus. He says, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these fathers of our nation, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that these covenants were made within Moses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily besets us, so easily entangles us. Put it aside. Stop it. Stop sinning. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. How do you fight sin? You fix your eyes on Jesus. Just like Peter. When Peter was on the boat and Jesus comes out and freaks them all out, they're like, it's a ghost, right? And he's walking on the water and Peter says, can I come to you, Jesus? And he says, yes, you can come to me. And Peter steps out and he's got his eyes fixed on Jesus, but as soon as he takes his eyes off of him, and we don't know, again, the context of what's going on. Are the waves still going around? Is he, does he take his eyes off of Jesus and look around and go, I'm actually on water. Right? Maybe he sees like a dorsal fin go by and then just freaks out. I don't know. But he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And again, right, the parallel for us is <laughs> keep your eyes on Jesus. And there are certain times where God has you in a boat that's in a wave, that's getting hit by waves over and over and over, and most often our prayer is, God, stop the storm. Take these waves away from me. And in reality, Jesus wanted them to be in that boat. Jesus wanted them to say, I want to look at Jesus. And so no matter what your thing is that you're going through right now, don't be distracted by the waves. Don't try to fix it in your own way. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Right? The, the cross in itself is not joyful. Right? It's not like one of those, those new Geico commercials. Right? Like if you're like one of those people like sitting in gum or, or, or walking into glass walls. Right? Like, it's not funny. Nobody looks at the cross and says, yeah, I want to do this. That's not what's happening here. It's the joy that was set before him. What was he going to accomplish in his sacrifice for all people? He was going to do what Moses couldn't do. He was going to set all people free for all time if they just set their eyes on him and believe in him. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus. In closing here, if you're like me, and I know I am, do you try to take control of a situation before asking God for his help? That's normally my go-to. Right? There's this thing, my job, something I've got to get done and before I even think about putting my head down and praying to God of the universe, I, I try to fix it. And then God's like, stinking silver, how many times are you going to do this? How many times do I got to show up and do it for you and make you look like a fool? Because it happens to me all the time. In my marriage, as a dad, that's new to me. Yeah. How many of these situations do I just 
I'm going to do this. I can fix this. Instead of looking to God for his help. And then finally, will you look to Jesus? Will you fix your eyes on Jesus? Who, who knows your suffering? Who knows what it's like to be a human being? Who knows what it's like to be an exile? And endure and not grow weary because God remembers you. He sent his son to die for you. So let's remember him in a time of communion. We here at Lower Town have communion every week, and so we're going to do that again here tonight. And so we have the elements uh, up here, and then here the gluten-free option is on this side up front only, and then there's some more in the back, uh, my right, your left. And so kind of try to spread yourself out as far as uh, if you're, whatever you're closest to, just kind of go that direction and we'll be fine. But we're going to remember. We're going to remember the God who remembers us. We're going to remember Jesus and what he did, that every time we take of these elements that we do this in remembrance of Jesus, that we look at the bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for us on the cross, the joy that was set before him, and then we see the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us to provide a way for us of salvation and propitiation. So let's bow in prayer. I want the worship team to come up. As we worship together in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and as we bow our heads and as we remember what Christ did, as we remember what God did for his people, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you remembered your people. I thank you that we now are remembered. That your son came to this earth, took on flesh, that he paid a penalty that we could not pay. It was impossible for us to do it. It was impossible for us to earn your favor. But he did it perfectly. And he says it can be yours if we would just trust in him. And so God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on Jesus, that we would turn our eyes to him, and that as we remember him, we remember the immense sacrifice that it was for Jesus and for you, Father, that you watched your only son be crucified by their creation, that Jesus, the creator of the universe, was murdered by his creation, and you did that for us because you love us and have remembered us. So God, accept our prayers, accept our worship as we gladly lift up to you the glory that's due your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.